I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. The climate change conference is sparking outrage amongst meat companies. Those in wealthy nations will be urged to eat less meat to try and bring down greenhouse gas emissions. Meat organizations and lobbying groups have very active plans at this conference. The food industry, under pressure for emissions, fights back at COP28. That's coming up on Day 6 today. Children under siege. I worry about these little kids. How are we going to protect them? Where am I going to hide her? Assessing the psychological damage to kids in Gaza. It's a gender-flipping steampunk take on Frankenstein. It's quite outrageous. It's quite unique. But should you watch Poor Things? And so bad, it's seasonal. I don't know if they could have tried harder to ruin it. The Star Wars Christmas special and the freaks who really love it. All today on Day 6. The Wretched Hive of Network TV Edition. I did promise many of you over the last few years that we would bring agriculture and food system to center stage at COP28. And here we are. The COP28 climate conference is entering its second week in Dubai. And already there's been an early announcement that 130 countries have signed on to a declaration to tackle the role of food and agriculture in climate change. Currently, food systems account for around one-third of global greenhouse gas emissions. They are a major driver of climate change and simultaneously vulnerable to its impacts. But while world leaders promise to lessen animal agriculture's climate burden, environmental activists say they're skeptical that industry groups will play ball. Shortly before this COP announcement, The Guardian reported on documents produced by the Global Meat Alliance, a group funded by the meat industry. The documents outline plans to promote a pro-meat message to delegates at COP28, including the idea that meat production benefits the environment. Kenny Torella is a staff writer for Vox who focuses on animal welfare and the future of meat. He's been following the meat and dairy messaging at COP28. Kenny, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thanks for having me, Brent. Let's start with emissions, because fossil fuels are the biggest contributor to climate change. Where does animal agriculture fit in? How does it compare? So fossil fuels accounts for about 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. But a big chunk of that actually is from agriculture. And independently, just meat and dairy production account for about 15 to 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And how does animal agriculture take up that much of, of the pie? There are a few ways. The first is the animals themselves. So we can start with cows. When cows eat grass or corn, it ferments in their stomach and they belch out methane, a highly potent greenhouse gas. Additionally, the manure from cows and other farmed animals has high levels of nitrous oxide, another highly potent greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. Another part of the equation is all the corn and soy that we grow to feed these animals. You know, globally, there's about 90 billion land animals raised for food every year. 
and they require a lot of corn and soy to, to fatten up. And growing that corn and soy requires a lot of fertilizer, which also has a big carbon footprint. In North America, where we eat a lot of meat, animal agriculture accounts for a fairly small percentage of the total emissions output. For, for the United States, it's about 6%. So why focus on it? Why make it an issue? That is right that, you know, globally it's 15 to 20% of, of emissions, but at least in the United States, it's give or take 6%. And that seems relatively small, but that's only because in the U.S. and in Canada, we use up a lot of fossil fuels to power our homes, to power our cars. And so while it's, you know, relatively small compared to other industries in North America, it is massive on its own, and especially when it's compared to the agriculture carbon footprint of other countries. But another thing I want to point out is that I think sometimes we have what is called climate tunnel vision, where we only look at the environment through the lens of climate change. But there are other aspects to the environment as well. And so in the U.S., animal agriculture is the leading cause of water pollution, Globally, it's the leading cause of deforestation and biodiversity loss. And in the U.S., there are more people um, who die prematurely from pollution from animal farms than coal plants. Well, at the UAE, the focus is on climate, and meat and dairy have not been huge talking points at previous COP conventions. This year, it's different. Why do you think that is? I think increasingly it's becoming difficult for global policymakers to ignore the enormous carbon footprint of livestock production. We can't reach our climate targets that we set um, at the Paris Climate Accords without significantly cutting back on meat consumption. And so one of the uh, results of that is that actually two-thirds of the menus at COP28 are going to be plant-based. Mm -hmm. However, this issue, you know, livestock's large carbon footprint, is not going to be addressed in the actual negotiations that take place at COP28 in which world leaders come together and set climate targets. So why is that? Uh, there's a whole number of reasons. I think the biggest one is that talking about eating less meat just isn't politically popular. You know, meat is tasty and it plays a central role in the Western diet. And so whenever policymakers talk about cutting back on meat and dairy consumption, it can upset farmers who have a lot of political sway and it can upset the public. And so it's a sensitive issue that most policymakers just don't want to touch. So instead they pursue other paths, like kind of changing how we farm to marginally reduce livestock emissions, which is important, but where we can really make a dent in agricultural and food emissions is by simply just eating less meat. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the idea that, that animal agricultural emissions have been getting less intense over the last several years. And there have been mitigating factors that, that new technologies have brought. Uh, do, do you think that there might not actually be the need to reduce the amount of meat we eat? Could the changes in practices do the deed instead? Over the years, you know, North American agriculture has been becoming more and more efficient. The carbon footprint of meat dairy per pound has been slowly getting smaller. But at the same time, consumption has been growing and growing and is outpacing any emission savings from making farming more efficient. 
How much meat do we eat in the global north compared to the rest of the world? The average American eats about 264 pounds of meat a year. And to put that into context, it's 70% more than the average European, and it's 200% more than the global average. But as the you know, middle-class wealth increases in the global south, does it follow then that, that their patterns of, of meat consumption will also increase as they have in North America? That's right. So there's something called Bennett's Law. It's a, it's a principle in economics that says as countries get richer, they diversify their diets, and that includes eating more meat and dairy. And so some activists are calling for, for what they consider to be a protein rebalance. So they're saying, you know, we in, in the global north, we need to eat a lot less meat to do our part to fight climate change. In the global south, there are a lot of efforts to uh, you know, increase meat consumption and to make farming more efficient. So mm. the solutions that, that need to be taken are really you know, geographically specific. You said earlier that you're not expecting any resolutions calling for less meat consumption at COP, but we know that representatives from the meat and dairy industries will be there. What are the talking points that they're showing up with? What, what's the message that they're trying to get out? They have plans to talk about how meat is beneficial to the environment, which when, when a product is, accounts for 15 to 20 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions, it's hard to, to square the messaging that they plan to push it at COP28. And so I think the industry is kind of at this turning point. You could actually think of it as similar to where oil and gas were in the 90s and early 2000s, where people were beginning to catch on to oil and gas's role in the climate crisis. And the meat industry is kind of at that same point in time right now where they're executing a similar playbook to the oil and gas industry and really trying to ward off any regulations that could slow down production or consumption. What did you think when you saw that there was going to be less meat served at this year's summit? What, what did that mean to you? Oh, I was pretty shocked. Um, I was really surprised, although, again, you know, I saw it as a real sign of progress because I think for so long, the broader environmental movement has kind of seen meat and dairy emissions as a sideshow with a real intense focus on oil and gas, which is understandable mm -hmm. because oil, gas, transportation, those are, you know, the biggest sources of emissions. But right behind them, there's agriculture. And as you know, the energy sector as the transportation sector decarbonize, but the agriculture industry doesn't, we could end up in a situation that by 2050, agriculture is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and, and likely other countries like Canada. So I think, you know, we stand at um, this fork in the road where the decisions we make today about how to handle agricultural emissions will affect future generations. Kenny Torella, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Brent. Kenny Torella is a staff writer for Vox. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Reuters video journalist Issam Abdallah was killed when a shell hit him while he was filming cross-border fire between Israel and Lebanon. News organizations and human rights groups say Israel is responsible for the death of a Reuters journalist, as well as injuries to six others. 
Isam Abdallah was killed on October 13th while filming in southern Lebanon, near the border with Israel. AFP photographer Christina Asi lost a leg and is still in hospital. In separate investigations, Reuters, AFP, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch all concluded the group of journalists was hit by two Israeli tank shells. Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, and AFP concluded the journalists were probably fired on deliberately. A spokesperson for the Israeli government said he wasn't familiar with the findings of the investigations and that Israel does not target civilians. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 63 journalists and media workers have been killed in the conflict between Hamas and Israel, 56 Palestinians, 4 Israelis, and 3 Lebanese. And... A fourth woman has accused Sean Diddy Combs of sexual assault. On Wednesday, the hip-hop superstar was named in a court case, accusing him of raping a woman 20 years ago when she was 17. Combs denies the allegation. Last month, Combs' former partner, R&B singer Cassie Ventura, accused him of physically and sexually assaulting her. They settled out of court the following day. Within a week, two more women filed similar lawsuits. In a statement this week, Combs denied all the allegations made against him. Still lots to come on day six, including Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, B. Arthur, the otherworldly weirdness of the Star Wars holiday special, and the special people who love it. There's something about it. So it's, it's really impossible to convince my little girl, Elia, she's five years old, that this is fireworks or thunderstrike, as I used to do in the previous escalations in Gaza. So she understands that there is bombing. That's Palestinian aid worker Yusuf Hamash. I spoke with him last month after he, his wife, and their two small children fled their home in the Jabalia refugee camp in Gaza and headed south to Khan Yunus. Even my son, who is two years old, when he hears warplanes, he understands there is going to be a, an explosion after that. And he yeah, it's a plane. Now there'll be a, a bomb. Last week, they fled south again to Rafa. Gaza health authorities say more than 17,000 people have been killed in the last two months, including more than 7,000 children. Those numbers can't be verified independently, but human rights groups say they are credible and have been reliable in the past. Iman Farajala is a psychologist who was born and raised in Gaza and now lives in California. In 2016, she traveled to Gaza to interview children about their experiences during what was then the latest round of fighting in 2014. She also has family who are still in Gaza. Iman Farajala, welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thank you for having me. When you interviewed children in Gaza about what they'd experienced during the fighting in 2014 and how they were coping after that, what did they tell you? So first of all, I would like to start that what is the reason that made me or drive me to interview the children in Gaza in the 2014? Because 2014 war was the most devastating war in Gaza. We are talking about 551 children who were killed, um, and many of them are also um, injured. It was a long war for 50 days. And many of the children that I have actually met, a lot of them, they had physical scars, wounds. Um, a lot of them, they have lost their limbs, uh, which is like it's evident right now in the 2023 war, and the whole world can see it. Loss of eyesight, um, a lot of sharpeners in their bodies that they still 
until now they they have it and these children a lot of them you know i noticed that they have a lot of traumatic symptoms behavioral symptoms some of them are cognitive symptoms some of them emotional symptoms um a lot of these kids are suffering from anxiety from sadness from fear worries depression uh, not wanting to leave the sights of their mothers they have like confusion uh incoherent speech that is they go to school because of the fear that they have they lack of concentration they are worried that they're going to be bombed some of them you know they deteriorate in terms of their ability to achieve in school mm-hmm. but this a child is basically he is lacking in nutrition because of the blockade that is on Gaza then he's walking to the school but there is a buzzing you know drone over his head not knowing that if he's going to be bombed or not and then he has to go to school and he has to be productive um one of the things that really was shocking to me is the fact that some of these kids were stripped out of their childhood um and i uh, have interviewed two sisters together and one is she was about 14 years old maybe 12 years old her sister was about 4 years old and her sister was sitting on her lap and she was telling me about the story of how the israeli soldiers killed her mother killed her brother bombed her house but she's sitting there worried about what if another war comes how i'm going to protect my sister who is 4 years old and she said this to me i don't worry about us we are the older people i worry about these little kids how we going to protect them where i'm going to hide her this is a child she's taken the role of a mother and a lot of the children right now in gaza when i look at the tv and i see like uh like 6 years old taking care of like a baby and like it's okay don't worry and their parents being killed in the war um this is like for me as a psychologist and as a human being i feel like you're stripping out the childhood of these children you also have family and loved ones in gaza so what is the latest news that you have heard from them what are, are you in touch with them are you able to give them any comfort yeah so i was lucky yesterday uh, thankfully for a while now uh, they don't have internet so i was lucky yesterday actually to catch um up with them and their situation is very very um bad the camp where i was raised is bombed most of it is gone uh, a lot of our neighbors has been killed of course i lost also family members i lost 11 to 15 family members and not yesterday the day before my uncle and his kids um they bombed the area where he's at and and he was with his kids injured you know they cannot find food they don't have the flour to make it bread is a very rare commodity water is a rare commodity they don't have the basic basic needs which is water food and um you know electricity they don't have any of that mm-hmm. is horrific i mean right now everybody's thinking like in addition to if we don't die this is their statement if we're not going to die from the bombs we're going to die from starvation we spoke with the palestinian aid worker who is a father of of two small children a few weeks ago his name is yusuf hamash and during our interview he said this to me i really really regret that i have children and brought children into life in gaza if you could say anything to him and to other parents and to the parents of the children in your families what would you say i would say this is a very strong statement that i am i'm really like it breaks my heart to hear it and it brings tears to my eyes to hear it. but i will say him that he needs to continue 
being resilient, you know, and to have faith no matter what happened and no matter what Israel does and no matter what the world is watching and to the suffering of Palestinians, you know, we should never, ever give up. And I take that from myself. I did not give up on myself when I was jailed by them, when I was shot by them, when my family was were humiliated by them and gone shot by them and not to give up um, and continue being uh, strong for his kids and for himself and for his community because we have we only have each other. People can be strong, but then there will be trauma afterwards. And according to Med Global, which is an aid group working in Gaza, almost one out of every 150 children in Gaza have been killed in the last two months. How can we begin to understand what kind of effect that's going to have on the children who survive? When you asked me about 2014, I explained to you why I started studying 2014 war. And I also went over some of the symptoms that these children have experienced, are not knowing that we're going to be faced with the genocide in the 2023. And imagine what it's going to be like. I cannot even imagine how it's going to be like. I can't. When you look into the future for Gaza, what do you see? And will the, will the repercussions, will the trauma be something that's there for, for generations to come? Or will it be something that that can be dealt with, lived with, and then life can, can continue. So when I look at the trauma in Gaza, I look at my own life. I have been as a child traumatized by the Israeli occupation. Ask me today, after all these years and doing all this research and be a psychologist and all this, did I heal completely from my trauma? I would lie if I say yes. I still like don't tolerate fireworks, loud noises. Um, it makes me jump and it makes me fearful. Imagine for these kids who lived war after war after war. I have the privilege now that I'm here and I'm safe, but these kids grow up in a war and I don't know what is going to the future going to be like in Gaza, depending on this war, but to say that they will be completely healed, I doubt that. Um, we can help them as psychologists to teach them coping mechanism, to teach them resilience, and to, you know, move on with life. But we have to understand that the problem and the trauma problem and the mental health problem in Palestine, in Gaza especially, is not really in the psychologist's hands only. It is in the politician's hands. And this war, this blockade, uh, starvation, having people and children being in a big concentration camp needs to end in order for their trauma to end. And the reason I'm saying that, I always think of my dad, who is 85 years old right now, and who lived all the wars in, 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 in Palestine from 1948 to 2023. And I'm thinking about this man, how traumatized he is. Iman Farjala, I'm sorry for the family members that you've lost, and I'm wishing nothing but the best for the family members that you're in contact with now in Gaza. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Iman Farajala is a psychologist who was born and raised in Gaza and now lives in California. The 2024 Color of the Year has just been released. You are never going to guess what it is. 
Okay, quick, think of a color. You have about a one in 10 million chance of getting it right. If that feels too daunting, here's a hint. A honey coral with a delicate sweetness. The Pantone Color Institute revealed its pick for the top hue of 2024 this week. It's not called honey coral, but it's close. Drum roll, please. The 2024 Pantone Color of the Year is Peach Fuzz. Huh? Really? Peach Fuzz. Stop laughing, Craig. Peach Fuzz. Oh, why not? Whether you like it or not, it's a name you can't ignore. But Pantone aren't the only ones coming up with clever monikers for colors, so we tracked down a couple of people who name colors for a living to find out how exactly they do it. Kind of people always ask when they see, oh, you work for paint, they're kind of like, who names the colors? It's definitely, I would say, one of the most fun parts of my job. Meet Nicole Darmanin and Kevin Skelly. Nicole names nail polish colors as a brand marketer for London Town. Kevin is in charge of naming paint shades for the Canadian company Cloverdale Paints. We really want to find a name that makes the shade come to life. Um, you know, if the name's kind of weird or abstract or something that doesn't land with them, they go, well, I like the color, but this name is really strange. So they might love the color. Oh, this is just the most beautiful color, but it's called chanterelle and I hate mushrooms. Here's a color called cornbread. Alabaster is another one, like a bone. Um, beeswax, ochre. We have a purple kind of violet glitter shade that's called Grape Fizz. Another one that's really popular this time of year, actually, it's that kind of deep blackened berry shade, and we named it Elderberry. I actually went out with a friend and she had it on this weekend and she showed it to me and I, it's like in my head, whenever I see it on someone, I think nailed it. <laughs> no pun intended. One of the fun ones uh, that I've always liked is creme brulee, just because it's a favorite dessert. Um, batter is another one. Straw, loam, uh, sienna, which is another type of pigment. We've got names like bamboo and birch. I have named dozens of nail polish shades in my career. Oh gosh, I, I, I've, hundreds for sure. I draw inspiration from, really it could be anywhere. I look at hair color, I look at wigs. Usually it happens when you're in nature, like out in the in the forest out here in British Columbia. We're so uh, we're so blessed with just such a beautiful um, landscape here, from water and rivers and oceans and through to the to mountains. Our spring collection was called Candy Dreams, and we looked at you know rock candy and those kind of traditional candies that came in the cellophane wrappers. Wood grains are another area because wood grains, of course, with so many different types of wood species. You know, our team looks at flowers and we look at berries, we look at leaves. Sometimes you tap into your inner poet or your inner storyteller. We look at textiles. I mean, really, you can you can look anywhere. It starts to get a bit dicey once you start running out of color names. As the range grows, the words that you love so much, you may have used them on another shade. <laughs> So you start thinking like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have used it on that shade because I want to use it on this new shade. Certain areas of color is like, oh my goodness, how many more, you know, river rocks, grays can I have? So all the popular colors in, in North America and especially Canada, uh, the tans, the grays, the off-whites, because there's only so many colors of snow or, you know, snowflake or white or, you know, bone color, or those types of things that you can name. So. Um, so that's, that's one of the things we run into.
We had our summer collection, summer 2023, was called Hot Tropic. And we had this one shade that we were having trouble naming. It was like a parakeet green or almost like a chartreuse. And we were just looking at all kinds of things for inspiration. And I started looking at cocktails and I found a green cocktail called a Tipsy Mermaid. We named the shade Tipsy Mermaid. And I think that's my favorite shade name that I've come up with. <laughs> if I get stuck, I'll reach out to people and say, what would you call this? And, uh, and people love that, you know? <laughs> they wanna play, right? They wanna say, hey, well, next time you do something like that, can I, you know, can I sit in on it? I honestly feel like the luckiest person in the world to have discovered that this could even be a job. I could talk about great shade names all day long. <laughs> Nicole Darmanin works in brand marketing at London Town. Kevin Skelly is the marketing manager for Cloverdale Paint in Vancouver. Hello, Mala. Where's Chewbacca? You, you don't know where he is? Oh, he's not there yet. Is that it? Oh, boy. What's that? Chewbacca is missing? Oh, no. Was he captured by Vader, Jabba, Kylo Ren? Hang on a sec. Did Luke Skywalker say hi to Lumpy? Because that can only mean one thing. That clip was from... One of the worst things that ever happened to the Star Wars galaxy. Well, not only that, one of the worst things ever aired on television. Yeah, in this galaxy. That's right. We're talking about the infamous Star Wars holiday special originally aired in 1978 on network television. The show was meant to keep audiences hooked on Star Wars between A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. To make the special, CBS had access to the Star Wars IP and its biggest stars. Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, and Peter Mayhew are all aboard. But the format the producers opted for? A variety show with singing, dancing, skits, guest stars, and everything. Yeah, not Han Solo's natural environment. Whatever genre you think is appropriate. (laughs) And those are the words that will haunt George Lucas to his grave. George Lucas hoped the holiday special would become a forgotten footnote in Star Wars history, but a few heroes with early VCRs preserved it for future generations, and it's been mystifying viewers ever since. There's something about it. It's mesmerizing. It really is. Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant are the hosts of the podcast Stuff You Should Know. They first covered the Star Wars holiday special in 2015, and their listeners loved it. Now, Stuff You Should Know re-releases that same episode every December, and their fans have included the podcast about the Star Wars holiday special into their own festivities. I don't have a Wookiee impression. I'm always jealous when people can make that noise. I think Josh can do one, though. All right. I can't believe you're going to make me do this, Chuck. <clears throat> wah, 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 wah. Pretty good, huh? Oh, boy. Describing the holiday special is tough because it has a hard-to-follow story. It has musical numbers. They kind of threw all the spaghetti at the wall, and I, I'm not sure if all of it's stuck or nothing's stuck. There is a thin 
thematic thread that kind of goes through the whole thing that I guess would qualify as a plot. And that is that there's a Wookiee holiday called Life Day. And Chewbacca is trying to get back home to his home planet. What happens during the actual action on the screen is his family sitting around waiting for him to come back. That's pretty much the two-hour plot. People sitting around waiting. It's funny, I, I do have a vague memory of watching it as a two-year-old. I was sitting there drooling and zoned out, and I found myself doing the exact same thing last night when I watched it as a 47-year-old. <laughs> I mean, th this is clearly a project that was born in a network boardroom with suits that were not very creative. They threw everything in there. They wanted it, you know, Harvey Corman's in it. Diane Carroll's in it. And a music video from Jefferson Starship. They were really just trying to pack it with as many sort of recognizable faces uh, for 1978 as they could. They made a, a deliberate choice to go with a variety special format, but unfortunately they made that decision at the very last moment somebody could choose to do a variety show and put it on TV. Everyone was so over it. So not only did they take the variety show format and use it for a Star Wars special, those two things have no business being in the same room together. They chose a format that everybody was sick of too, so that it was just doomed from the start. They took such a creative, innovative, groundbreaking franchise, and I don't know if they could have tried harder to ruin it. The most unwatchable part of the Christmas special, I don't know if I can pick out a part because it exists as such a whole. <laughs> uh, I mean, what was the Diane Carroll bit? She is titillating and arousing uh, Chewbacca's elderly <laughs> dad, Itchy. <laughs> I'm getting your message. Are you getting mine? Oh, oh. Every couple of minutes, something comes along, and I'm like, I can't, I can't keep going with this. And you kind of muddle through, and you find yourself on the other side, and you're, you're no better off than you were before you watched that segment. It's just one of those things you kind of say, like, yeah, I, I got through it, and I did it. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's not good. You know, you maybe could even say that the holiday special brought us closer as co-hosts, even. It was a harrowing experience that we went through together, yeah. having to both watch it, you know, as part of the, the podcast episode we recorded on. Yeah, it's like we su survived a, a traumatic event together. <laughs> the listener response to this episode was surprisingly good. I think people enjoy, especially Star Wars fans, love hearing people's take on the holiday special. Well, we've heard from some people that say it's not Christmas until Hans Gruber falls from Nakatomi Plaza <laughs> or until they hear the Star Wars holiday special episode that we have. We've gotten some incredible emails where it's everything from people having uh, friends over to listen and it's become part of their tradition to people in the military on deployment that it makes them feel connected to home. People going through hard times and that episode helps them get through. Mm -hmm. We're very holiday-oriented, like Christmas was a big deal to us when we were growing up, and we're both nostalgic-type guys, so the idea that people are taking it and listening to it again and again, listening to it while they're wrapping presents or listening to it while they're drinking eggnog or something like that, and it's become a part of their holiday tradition is just, it's rather heartwarming. 
the tidings are glad. So we just want to wish all our Canadian friends up there a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. Right, Josh? Yeah. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, eh? And a solemn life day to all. Chuck Bryant and Josh Clark are the hosts of the podcast Stuff You Should Know. The annual rerun of their episode on the Star Wars Holiday Special will drop again on December 16th. Still to come on day six, how a children's hospital fundraising video racked up 10 million views and is jam-packed with punchlines. Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts, also at cbc.ca slash day6. This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. That's a clip from the trailer for Poor Things, a new Emma Stone flick that hit theaters last night. It's from the same director and writer who brought us The Favorite, the off-the-wall dark comedy also starring Emma Stone that earned Olivia Colman a Best Actress Award for her performance as a wildly insecure Queen Anne. Did you just look at me? Did you? Look at me. Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes! The Favourite was a deliciously quirky film, and if reviews are anything to go by, Poor Things kicks things up another notch. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized, but she's progressing at an accelerated pace. Poor Things tells the story of a woman named Bella Baxter, who has been brought back to life by a mad scientist but with the brain of an infant. It's the kind of premise that could have you leaning in or running for the exit. So, should you watch it? Jane Crowther is here to tell you which way to go. Jane is a film critic and the editor-in-chief of Total Film. Jane, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Jane, the plot of Poor Things sounds completely insane. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, it's insane if you think... uh yeah, I mean, it sort of is, but it's it's also a bit of a play on Frankenstein. So from that point of view, we've sort of seen it before. But the thing that makes it different is this is Frankenstein. If it was gender flipped, if it was in a steampunk world, and if there was a lot of sex and nudity and swearing in it, uh, which wasn't in the original. So yeah, it's quite outrageous. It's quite unique and a very specific look, feel and tone. But that's what makes it so special. Well, and definitely a twist on Victorian sense abilities, which, which would have been part of the, the original Frankenstein story. Yes. But let's back up a step, because I just described the premise of poor things a moment ago, but I have the feeling people might need to hear it again. What is the basic storyline here? 
Yeah, so this is about a Victorian doctor um, played by Willem Dafoe who experiments with bodies. He likes to uh, graft the heads of chickens onto goats and ducks onto pigs. And what his latest experiment is taking a, a young dead woman and reanimating her. And when she sort of comes back to life, she actually starts at sort of day zero. So she has an adult woman's body, but she has to begin to evolve as a child through to a toddler, to a teenager, to an adult. So he brings in a young student, Rami Youssef, to help him basically socialize her because uh, she behaves like a toddler um, in a woman's body and then they discover that as she evolves and as she learns to speak and she sort of understands the prison in which she's living as a woman in Victorian society that they can't actually contain her she's no longer an experiment that they can just enjoy in her in his home that she wants to go and out and explore the world and that's what she does mm. and it's really the story of a young woman coming to her sort of full understanding of herself and exploring the world and um, her emancipation in a way it's it's weirdly um very pertinent to anybody in today's society it's about you know finding yourself enjoying yourself and being your true self and, and that premise sounds profoundly feminist and and, and also quite you know profound yes. on its own but the payoff here and and the, the currency of the storytelling appears to be very high humor what makes it so funny Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's from the same team behind The Favourite, right. so the director, Yorgos Lanthimos, and Emma uh, Stone is starring as Bella, this, this young woman. And they've worked together on The Favourite, and they work together on this, and she's produced it as well. So if you liked and enjoyed that sort of bawdy, cheeky, irreverent humour that's in The Favourite, there's more of that here. People call each other very rude things. There's, uh, you know, Bella refers to sex as frantic jumping and she wants to do it all the time. <laughs> and why can't people do it all the time? She's not interested in dressing correctly as a Victorian lady should. She wears whatever she wants. She does whatever she wants. If she doesn't like any food, she spits it straight on her plate. So the humour is in watching somebody go into this very rigid and formal society with rules about what people should and shouldn't do, particularly women, and turning it all on its head and just appalling these very sort of stuck-up, pearl-clutching Victorians. That Emma Stone performance sounds amazing, essentially playing an infant growing up in a grown woman's body, and then this arc of understanding the world and, and rebelling against it. How does she make that work? Uh, she she really does. Um, I mean, we know she's a talented actor. We've seen her win Oscars. You know, like we know she can do all sorts of different things. But what we I think what we haven't appreciated about her is her physical dexterity. Mm -hmm. She's incredibly good with her body um, in terms of a sort of Buster Keaton level of understanding <laughs> what's funny and how she sort of moves. And a lot of the sort of humor and the pathos of this film is in how she negotiates dancing or how she negotiates walking and running and the sort of the verve that she puts into that to show her characters sort of not caring about the rules. So it's really an incredible physical performance. Tell us how she dances, Jane. Can, can you describe that? Oh, yeah. I mean, she does this. She goes to this ball and she sees all these people doing very formal foxtrot and, you know, and she wants to dance and she just dances like a, a ragdoll she kicks people in the balls she is just completely <laughs> untethered and it's 
it's a moment of absolute brilliance to see that and joy to watch her do that as well. Um, and then the next scene, she goes out and drinks so much gin that she's absolutely passed out. And then again, even in her, in the way she sort of falls down and lies still, the physicality of that's very amusing and tells its own story as well. She's just brilliant in this. So, of course, this character with an adult body but the mind of a child grows up over the course of the film. Yes. And, and she does have a lot of sex and seems to enjoy it. Is, is there an awkwardness to the film being that explicit or, or is that also liberating? It's played for laughs, for one. Um, a lot of the time the, the sex scenes are very sort of um, amusing. And it also is very much about her journey of discovery and her emancipation and you know, we it's asking the audience to say, if you find this troubling, why do you? Hmm. What are your thoughts about sex? Your prurience about it? So there's, there's that sort of interesting push-pull going on as well. And I think when you watch it, you won't think it's salacious or, or too much. It really is integral to the story and you can see why she's done it. Hmm. The, the, some people have made comparisons with Barbie. Can you walk us through that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's very much like Barbie. It's, it would make a great double bill. It's, <laughs> it's literally about, you know, a woman who's been built by men as a plaything, discovering their own agency and um, running towards freedom and emancipation and having great fun doing it. And both films have that sort of joyousness about them um, that... And also that universal, universal element that you don't have to be a woman or a feminist to enjoy this. It helps, but it really is for everyone. It is about the human condition and finding yourself and being true to yourself and doing what you enjoy. And, I, and you know, who can go into a cinema and not get a kick out of that? Mm. I, I think everyone can. Mm -hmm. So funny, but also you found it quite empowering. Did you expect that that empowerment going in? Uh, no, because when you say Victorian, you think, well, it's going to be very buttoned up. And, right. You know, even the even the favourite, which was, you know, about empowered women, was still very much set within own, its own rules um, of society and, and the court. This is this. There's no rules. All, all bets are off on this. So, yeah, hmm. it's a roller coaster ride to watch it. it. You don't ever really know where it's going. There is a payoff twist at the end that is an absolute kick. And, yeah, it, it is great fun to ride along with Bella and, and look at the world through her eyes. The film is Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Jane, it's out in North American theatres this weekend. Should we watch it? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go and see something that you know what you're getting, fine, there's plenty of that on offer. But this is going to challenge you. It's going to make you have a conversation with your friends afterwards. And, you know, it's visually absolutely stunning. Jane Crowther, thank you for being with us. No worries. Jane Crowther is the editor-in-chief of Total Film. Every parent knows that kids, while a magical gift from heaven, can kind of be In case you haven't recognized that voice, you haven't seen Deadpool. It's Canadian actor Ryan Reynolds, and that's the start of his holiday season campaign video for Toronto's Sick Kids Hospital Foundation. Michael Bublé and Austin Matthews also make cameos in the video. And it's not a typical pull-on-the-heartstrings type hospital ad campaign. This one takes a decidedly different tone. Hey kids, it's NHL superstar Austin Matthews. Hey! I want to make a Bublé! Ah! Yeah, it's pretty funny. Making tasteful comedy about sick children is no small feat. 
But this isn't the first time Reynolds has used his charm for sick kids' benefit. Ryan Reynolds' partnership with Sick Kids began in 2016. He had received uh, the Canada's Walk of Fame uh, award, and he was at that celebration. And so was Haley Wickenheiser, who, by the way, is now a pediatrician. Haley had befriended a patient at Sick Kids named Grace Bowen, and who was a hockey player as well. And Haley invited Grace to be her date for Canada's Walk of Fame. And it was at that event, right on stage, when Haley asked Grace, of all the celebrities in the audience tonight, who's the one you want to meet the most? And Grace said, Ryan Reynolds. He sprang out of his seat and ran on stage and gave Grace a big hug. And uh, from that moment on, he developed a relationship with Grace and her family. That's Kate Torrance, the vice president and head of brand for Sick Kids Foundation. Sadly, Grace passed away from a form of cancer called osteosarcoma. But Ryan Reynolds stayed in touch with her family, and he has since made five holiday videos for sick kids, always featuring the same ugly Christmas sweater. Some people may recall a prank with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman, who invited Ryan Reynolds to a party that they told him was an ugly sweater party. But when he arrived, he realized he was the only one wearing the ugly sweater, and they took a great photo, and that photo went viral uh, of Ryan looking not too happy about being pranked. So Ryan managed to turn what started out as a prank into uh, an incredible idea that uh, generated fundraising for sick kids. This year was the first time Ryan Reynolds came to Sick Kids to shoot the holiday video. And only a few days after its launch, it's racked up over 10 million views across different platforms. Ryan came to us actually this year and said, I've got an idea that's really special that I think could be really big, but it's a little different from what we've done in the past. What's your name? You look so stupid in that sweater. He followed up with sharing a script with us. Right away, we we laughed out loud. We loved the idea. We really loved how it leaned into that insight about how when you're a parent of a sick child, um, you really want them to get back to normal. And sometimes normal means they do things that are hard to manage or annoying. Uh, that's what parenting is about. Hey, so do you want to try having a meltdown and throwing your food on the floor, even though we cooked it exactly the way you like it? We just thought it was a really clever way of leaning into that insight about parenthood and uh, and actually something we've heard from, from hospital staff as well is that it's refreshing to see kids behaving like kids again uh, when you're working with them because that means it's a sign that they're getting better. One of the most special things about Ryan is he is really personally involved and he really cares about who he's interacting with. So before coming into the hospital, he knew what patients he was meeting. He knew their names and their backgrounds. He came prepared with questions for them. None of the children in the spot are actors. They are all real sick kids patients. Thankfully, you have somebody who, as professional as Ryan, he can really work with the kids and figure out how to bring out the best performance uh, from them. Uh, and so somebody like Isla has never done any acting before, and uh, but we saw her sassy personality and her confidence, and so she played her part, her screaming part. 
Being able to watch that happen was was actually pretty magical. Considering we were shooting in a working hospital with real patients and staff, they were so respectful and efficient. And uh, and that's partly why the, the film is as magical as it is, is because of the professionalism of Ryan and his crew. So Ryan has been working with us on our holiday campaigns since 2018. So this year is actually the fifth year uh, that he's leveraged his ugly holiday sweater to uh, create films for us to inspire people to give. And at the end of the fourth year, we had raised over $2.3 million from these campaigns alone. This year, so far, donations are tracking uh, uh, better than we've seen uh, any year as well, which in you know today's climate uh, is re- a real testament to Ryan's ability to inspire people to take action. We love you, Kate Torrance is the vice president and head of brand for Sick Kids Foundation. Rift from the headlines. And here we go with Riff from the headlines, our weekly quiz, three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. Guess who's back? Back, back, back again. Shady's back. What you say when MCs come to play? Unfitted, cause we take it back like Spinal Tap. Preparing your intellect before your final nap. So uh, let's take it back to the concrete streets. Little girl, it's a great big world, but there's only one of me. You can't touch, cause I'm cause too much. But tonight I'm gonna rock you. Tonight I'm gonna rock you. Spinal Tap with Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. Jurassic 5 and Concrete Schoolyard and Eminem with Without Me and Darlene McGinnis of Halifax correctly guessed the headline that we're looking for Rob Reiner confirms that a sequel to This Is Spinal Tap will start filming in 2024 congratulations Darlene a day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon now here's this week's clue put on the telly And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Rift from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. 
Day 6 was produced by Annie Bender, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tusfu Tedessa. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott, and I'm Brent Bambury. It's six days to the final scheduled day of sitting in the House of Commons, one day to Human Rights Day, and seven days till we meet again on day six. Wow, 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 wow. Pretty good, huh? For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.